Our scripture lesson this morning is from Psalm 73. I'll give you a minute to find that in your Bible or your device. If you need a Bible, um, you're welcome to one of the Red P Bibles in front of you. Devices are nice. It's easy to punch in a scripture and there it is. But I just like the feel of the pages of God's word between my fingers. So follow along as I read from Psalm 73. Surely God is good to Israel, to those who are pure in heart. But as for me, my feet had almost slipped. I had nearly lost my foothold, for I envied the arrogant when I saw the prosperity of the wicked. They have no struggles. Their bodies are healthy and strong. They are free from the burdens common to man. They are not plagued by human ills. Therefore, pride is their necklace. They clothe themselves with violence. From their callous hearts comes iniquity. The evil conceits of their minds know no limits. They scoff and speak with malice. In their arrogance, they threaten oppression. Their mouths lay claim to heaven, and their tongues take possession of the earth. Therefore, their people turn to them and drink up waters in abundance. They say, how can God know? Does the Most High have knowledge? This is what the wicked are like. Always carefree, they increase in wealth. Surely in vain have I kept my heart pure. In vain I have washed my hands in innocence. All day long I have been plagued. I have been punished every morning. If I had said I will speak thus, I would have betrayed your children. When I tried to understand all this, it was oppressive to me till I entered the sanctuary of God. Then I understood their final destiny. Surely you place them on slippery ground. You cast them down to ruin. How suddenly are they destroyed, completely swept away by tears. As a dream when one awakes, so when you arise, O Lord, you will despise them as fantasies. When my heart was grieved and my spirit embittered, I was senseless and ignorant. I was a brute beast before you. Yet I am always with you. You hold me by my right hand. You guide me with your counsel. And after your word, you will take me into glory. Whom have I in heaven but you? And earth has nothing I desire beside you. My flesh and my heart may fail, but God is the strength of my heart and my portion forever. Those who are far from you will perish. You destroy all who are unfaithful to you. But as for me, it is good to be near God. I have made the sovereign Lord my refuge. I will tell of all your deeds. This is the word of the Lord. you're a visitor with us, we have been spending this summer preaching through some of the Psalms, which are, the book of Psalms is God's hymn book for ancient Israel, the set of songs that he gave to them to sing together in worship. And some of them um, fit with what we imagine doing in that setting, and some of them, like this one, maybe don't fit quite as much. But I am excited to dig into this text. But first, let's come to the Lord in prayer. God and Father, I pray that you would be with us as we examine your word near all of our hearts as we are sinners sitting under it, and that you would be near me, a sinner, as I seek to proclaim it. Teach all of us to walk more closely with your Son, Jesus Christ our Lord. Amen. So there is this fascinating thing I was thinking about as I thought about this text that we do in our modern media age, 
this really strange thing when you think about it um, that, that we do with the television and internet and things that I do, and that is what people call hate-watching. Hate-watching. <laughs> if, you, if you've never heard that term, that's what happens when you watch some show or read some article or whatever, and the whole purpose is because you dislike the person that it's about. Um, it's what fuels a lot of talk shows, right? Like trashy daytime talk shows, where the whole point is that you sit there and judge the people that come on. Um, it's, it's what, I mean, it's a, the reason I think a lot of people watch, like, like the Real Housewives or the Kardashians or these, you know, these reality TV shows so that they can just think um, they're outraged, right? They can just sit in their outrage that these people would have that much money. Like, how, how could that be? Um, I think a lot of celebrity journalism stems from that impulse. And there's a lot that is unhealthy, right, <laughs> about that tendency, obviously. Um, at the simplest level, anything that is so nakedly about looking down at other human beings made in God's image is a problem. Um, but on a deeper level, I think that thing that those people do, that hate-watching, does reveal a very real tension that we feel in our hearts. Um, while it's not healthy for us to do, maybe it reveals a struggle that in a lot of ways we can feel, although we don't always name. Um, it's sometimes said that the hardest argument against Christianity is some version of the problem of suffering, right? Something like, why do good things, or why do bad things happen to good people? Um, and that is certainly uh, a question that many of us wrestle with that has good answers, but that is hard. But I think that if it was just, if the universe was just equal suffering for everybody, I don't know that we would really struggle with that question that much. Um, really, we ask that question in part because of the opposite, uglier question which is, why do good things happen to some really terrible people, right? Why do we see people who seem to not deserve it um, prosper and not suffer while others do? And that's really the question that this psalm is about. We've said several times, right, that the psalms cover, um, that they have a kind of authenticity about the world and how we feel about the world that we don't always have in the modern world and ask hard questions and this psalm is a good example of it, as it really asks that question. What do we make of the fact that we live in a world where oftentimes wicked or evil people seem to prosper? So let's just dive into this psalm and wrestle with that question. To do that, first we need to just feel the weight of how the psalmist asks it, of the psalmist's complaint about the world. The psalmist's complaint. We'll return to the first few verses in a moment, but if you want to start in verse 4, where the psalmist starts describing this particular group of people that he calls the arrogant and the wicked. And if you read verse 4, it says, They have no struggles. Their bodies are healthy and strong. They are free from common human burdens. They are not plagued by human ills. So these wicked people are healthy and comfortable. The world is full of suffering, the psalmist says, but they seem immune to it. It's not just that they're not having, like, the worst lives. They're doing great. They're free from the common human burdens. When you ask who has a successful life, these are the kinds of people you would point to. And the response to that blessing, though, isn't gratitude to God, but it's pride in verse 6. Therefore, pride is their necklace, and they clothe themselves with violence. From their callous hearts comes iniquity. Their evil imaginations have no limit. So it's not just that these are bad people who are blessed, but it's that the blessings actually somehow feed into their badness. They say, look at what I'm getting away with, and then they go do even worse things in response. They clothe
clothe themselves with violence. Their evil imaginations invent ever more destructive evils. In fact, they're doing so well that their pride makes them think that they own the universe. So verse 9, their mouths lay claim to heaven, and their tongues take possession of the earth. They believe the world is their oyster. There's nothing they can't do, right? They came, and they saw, and they conquered. And not only then does that prosperity feed their pride, but it makes people follow them. It makes them famous. People look at their success and get in line to praise them in verse 10. Therefore, their people turn to them and drink up waters in abundance. They're well known, and people ride on the coattails of their success. And not only do they, does that cause them to get famous, but it causes those who follow them and themselves to mock God in verse 11. They, they and the people that follow them say, how would God know? Does the Most High know anything? Which leads the psalmist then to him to summarize his complaint in verse 12. This is what the wicked are like. Always free of care, they go on amassing wealth. And notice just how bleak that final statement is, right? How absolute it is. Apparently, the psalmist thinks that is how the world works, that the bad guys win and evil brings prosperity and wealth. Now look, here's what's tricky about this point in the psalm, right? On the one hand, part of the psalmist's attitude in these verses we just read is problematic, and he's going to acknowledge them, right? But on the other hand, what he's not going to say is that there isn't a sense in which what he says is true. There are people in our world, when we read those lines, right, that we picture, maybe people on TV or on the news who write books and get rich as they seem to exploit others, masters of industry and power brokers and reality TV stars, right? It's those people that we talked about a minute ago in the introduction that we hate watch. And there are also smaller people in our lives that we might be picturing. It can often feel like the universe is unfair. Um, that, you know, you get passed over for a promotion while some really sketchy coworker um, gets it. You feel like you've sought to be faithful and all you've gotten is frustration and suffering while those around you who have been faithless seem to prosper. That is a real experience for most of us. And so we need to ask, what do we do with that Christianly? And that's what we're going to do in a minute. But first, we just need to acknowledge something about that, and that is that that is real, and that means that there is a, just this thing we have to realize about the world, but that both our world and Christians are often bad at acknowledging. And that is that because of passages like this one in Scripture, we cannot reason from success to righteousness. In our world, we cannot reason from success to righteousness. That is the logic of our culture often. If it works, then it must be good, right? Um, like, like in business, you know, I mean, it's the, the guy builds this successful business and everybody wants to know what he did and everyone wants to emulate what he did. And it doesn't matter whether those specific things were good things or bad things. Um, in fact, I mean, oftentimes they use their success as the very justification that it's good, right? Like, we live in a world—there there are wonderful, successful people, obviously, and we'll talk about that in a minute. And there are very immoral, self-serving, successful people in our world. Um, but the problem is that in, in our culture, when you point out the ways, you know, that those people have problems, what is responded with is their success, right? It's look at the great things they've done. Look at how successful they've been. In America, success covers a multitude of sins. And that reasoning is especially dangerous for us as Christians, 
when righteousness starts being defined by strength and success rather than by God's good will in the world, um, the ends end up justifying the means, and we end up creating a world that is made for monsters, not men and women. But that same reasoning easily creeps into our lives as Christians, too. Never mind the amount that we just buy into that cultural way of thinking. It's the logic that, like, that I hear pastors use, right? When they see, you know, a guy gets a big church, and it's just do whatever he did, right? The question isn't, like, what good things did he do? Were there problems? It's just whatever he did, that must be the right thing. It's the logic of all of us, often, uh, being willing to sacrifice what we believe is right in order to, to get what we want in the world. We can all slip into that. And this psalm, and many other places in scripture, should warn us against that tendency. Um, righteousness is righteousness, and worldly success is worldly success. And in this age, sometimes the two are connected, sometimes they're not, right? This world is just too messy for us to draw straight lines from one to the other. Just to be clear, I'm not saying that you can, that, you know, the success never comes, right, with righteousness. It's more, um, the world is a mess. It's, it's like this, all right? In the Bible, there are a couple of books that are called wisdom literature in the Bible. The most famous of those books is the book of Proverbs, and the book of Proverbs focuses on one side of this coin, right? It focuses on the way that um, obeying God and fearing him and seeking to live wisely often does bring blessing, you know, and success in this world. That if you, um, if you work hard, you know, and save up, then often that will be, you know, good for you. Um, if you follow God's ways, it will be well. Um, and that's the book of Proverbs, but on each side of the book of Proverbs is another book of wisdom literature. On one side, with Psalms in, in between, but it's Job, right? And Job is the story of this guy who is wise and fears God and obeys him, and everything goes terribly for him. And he loses everything, and he ends up sitting in a pile of asses, riddled with disease, cursing the day he was born— and on the other side of the book of Proverbs is the book of Ecclesiastes, which is about all the times that Proverbs doesn't hold true. When you work really hard and save all your money and then you lose everything and life just feels futile. And what I'm saying is that you need both of those perspectives at the same time to have a biblical sense of life in this world. If you only have the second part, right, that, you know, you're just going to give up. Like, that's not good. But if you only have the first part, which I think we as Christians are often prone to slipping into, then when the world doesn't work in those ways that we cause us all kinds of issues. So that's the psalmist's complaint, though, right? It's that you can't draw those lines, that the world seems unfair, and often success is gotten through wickedness. And like we said, that is in a sense legitimate. However, like we also said, we need to recognize that there are ways where the psalmist views this attitude as sinful. And so that's where we need to pay attention to the psalmist's sin in this, the psalmist's sin. Before what we just read, in verse 2, the psalmist owns that his complaint is not just coming from a neutral place. Here's how he describes his state of mind. He says, But as for me, my feet had almost slipped. I had nearly lost my foothold, for I envied the arrogant when I saw the prosperity of the wicked. Those first images of, of nearly losing your feet, your footing, of teetering, those are images of, of losing your faith, right? And in scripture, in the Psalms especially, one of the images of God is as this solid rock, this foundation that we stand on and have sure footing. And so when he says that he's about to slip and fall, he's picturing this as stepping away from that rock of his salvation. And he says he's doing it because he envied the arrogant. 
the prosperity of the wicked isn't just like a philosophical point. He's not like, hmm, God, I wonder why it is that some bad people seem to prosper. No, he's feeling this right down in his heart. It's causing him agony and leading him into sin and envy. Here's what that envy looks like. The psalmist notes the health and fame of the wicked in what we just read. And then in verse 13, this is what he thinks. He thinks, surely in vain I have kept my heart pure and have washed my hands with innocence. So he looks at the success of these wicked people and he says, my seeking for purity and righteousness seems like vanity. The image of washing your hands is this image. They would have these ceremonial cleanness rituals in the Jewish world. This is written in, and the psalmist is saying, like, I have done that, right? But with innocence instead of just water. In truth, I, I have tried to live this pure life, and yet, verse 14, all day long I have been afflicted, and every morning brings new punishments. So the psalmist is suffering in the middle of this righteousness. Every day seems worse than the one before and that leads him to feel like maybe his attempts to follow God are in vain. He sees his circumstances and the circumstances of those who aren't pursuing righteousness. And so then his heart grows jealous towards God. Later, he describes that state of heart in verse 21 as he says, When my heart was grieved and my spirit embittered. By staring at this unfairness in the world, he's feeling this bitterness growing inside of him. Now, we're not to the answer to the psalmist's complaint yet, right? And that's important to acknowledge. While he's naming his sin, there's going to be another step in a minute. But before we take that step, first, let's just, um, let's just notice a couple things about this sin that the psalmist is feeling. The first is that I think this envy he acknowledges probably explains why this psalm is put in such absolute terms, right? If you read what he says here, he's not saying, you know, man— Sometimes good people succeed and sometimes bad people seem to succeed. He's saying, like, the wicked are always healthy and rich and fat and happy, and the righteous people only suffer and are in agony, right? That's, that's the, ag the, the attitude he's conveying. And I think that while he's acknowledging a true tension we feel about the world, it's his envy, not reality, that accounts for the extremes of what he says. It's a picture of what envy does to our hearts. It warps our view of the world. The psalmist is seeing this kind of distorted picture of reality where all he can see is the unfairness. Bitterness blinds him. And that's something we need to acknowledge about our own struggles with sin. Our hearts are not always reliable observers of the world. Often our view of the world gets thrown out of whack, particularly when we let that better bitterness fester. And that is particularly true when we're in the middle of hard circumstances. That's the second thing I think this psalm reminds us of. The psalmist is crying out out of the middle of hardship, as he says. And on the one hand, this psalm is helpful because of the authenticity that the psalmist shows, right? He, he, he acknowledges what he is feeling. I mean, he writes this down for all of Israel, even though he acknowledges that parts of what he says here are problematic. And that is a good reminder to us that we can speak the truth about how we're feeling, even in the midst of bitterness and grief. But on the other hand, this is also a good reminder to us that authenticity does not remove the possibility for sin. I think in our current moment, we're so in love with authenticity. And there's, like we said, there's good things, right? It's better to be honest and dishonest, but we can also be honestly wrong. Suffering and grief and frustration, God views those things with compassion, and he wants to meet us and support us in the midst of them, but they are not excuses for sin. 
and they can lead us into it. The psalmist's complaint is understandable and to be viewed sympathetically, but is also wrong. And as he acknowledges, if he had said this to God's people, would be destructive to them. And I think we need to be mindful of both of those realities. I need, I just, I need to be mindful of that as I process, process frustrations and struggles and griefs. Um, we need to be honest, but what we also need to guard against is using those places where we are, those hard places to justify hurting others or not seeking healing or turning from God because those are real temptations. And then one last note about the psalmist's sin, and that is that it should be a particular warning against the poison of envy right? We're talking more generally up to now, but envy is really the sin he identifies, and it is a sin that is easy to overlook. Envy is seeing things that we want and that others have and letting it poison us towards them and letting it make us ungrateful for the things that we have and ultimately causing us to turn against God and deny his goodness. And as in this psalm, I think envy manifests in our hearts when we feel like the world is unfair maybe one of the most particular times we feel it. We mentioned already that there are people that we are thinking of when we hear the psalmist make his complaint, right? At least for me, there's people in my mind that I am picturing, but whoever we pictured, whether it's somebody on television, and look, we should say this here, like that envy is the sin of hate watching, right? Like that, that's what we're really saying we're doing. But whether it's some celebrity or whether it's your next door neighbor, that person that you're picturing when you feel like the world is unjust and just so unfair, we need to make sure that what we are feeling towards them is not sinful envy. Often, envy dresses up as a sense for justice. We say that there is injustice in the world, and we want to see it addressed, and that is good, but a righteous sense of injustice can morph into a sinful sort of envy. So then we have to ask, is it really the wickedness of somebody that bothers us, or is it just their success that we don't have? Is maybe the fact that they're doing better than us the real thing that's causing us to conclude that they're worse than us? Are we as righteous as we claim, or are we really just as flawed? Maybe even suffering some of the consequences of our own actions, and what we're doing is using envy of others as an excuse, a kind of lie that we construct about the world to make ourselves feel better not always the case, right? There is real injustice in the world, but we do always have to be guarding our hearts against being twisted in those ways. So that's our sin and the psalmist's sin, right? There's a truthfulness to his complaint. There's also a sinfulness, and we need to be careful in how we process it. But the psalm still then comes and gives us God's answer to this struggle as well. It gives us God's answer to this complaint. Really, it gives two answers. The first answer God gives is his justice. The psalmist is reminded um, in verse 16 of God's ultimate justice. He recounts this moment where he comes into worship, start reading there, where he says, when I tried to understand all this, it troubled me deeply till I entered the sanctuary of God, then I understood their final destiny. He's talking about the wicked there, and he's saying, I came and encountered God, and this is the first thing that he taught me. Verse 18, surely you place them on slippery ground. You cast them down to ruin. How suddenly are they destroyed, completely swept away by terror. Notice the contrast there that in verse 2, the psalmist feels like his feet are on slippery ground. But now he says, in truth, it's those who are prospering in their wickedness. 
the reason that he says this is that while in their pride they feel like they are great, that they are almost godlike, in truth, before God, they are nothing in the face of God's power. Verse 20. This is such a vivid image. They are like a dream when one awakes. When you arise, Lord, you will despise them as fantasy. For all their seeming strength and glory in this world, when the Lord arises, they just disappear like the vapor of a half-remembered dream. All this is an image of God's justice, his judgment on wickedness. Um, And sometimes when we talk about that justice, it is something that comes in the middle of life, right? We know stories about people who have great falls, um, where justice does seem to catch up with them, right? They seem to be that prospering, wicked person, but then their past misdeeds come to light. Um, And it's worth noting that, that part of the Bible's confidence in God's justice is the fact that Even if that fall doesn't come in this life, the fact that it could does mean that they are standing on slippery ground. You imagine the person, right, who committed some great crime um, and, and then prospered and has built their whole life on the fruit of that crime. There's a sense in which even in this age, even if they never get caught, right, they have to live in constant fear of that reality, that the foundation they're standing on seems shaky. But more than that, this is an image of God's final justice central part of the Christian view of the world is the belief that in the end, a reckoning will will come and justice will be done. Now, on one level, when we hear that, that is a truth that we need to be careful to apply to our own hearts. That's not what the psalmist is focusing on here, but there's a real sense in which when we think about God's ultimate coming justice, we recognize that's something that we are owed, right? When we hide ourselves in Jesus, become of it. That final judgment doesn't only come for really bad people, or maybe rather that we are a lot worse people than we think, but it's coming for us. But that said, the Bible also recognizes that God's final judgment does hold a special terror for the powerful and prideful of our world. Those are the people the psalmist is talking about. That no person is going to prosper in their evil forever. That the more they get away with things in this life, the more above the law they seem, the more they are storing up for themselves, Scripture says, wrath on the day to come. And I think we need to remember that when we look at the world, when we watch the news, when we look at the place that we live. In our world, um, all justice is approximate. In our age, all justice is approximate. No matter how hard we try, we will never eradicate evil. We will never remove people's ability to use power to exploit each other, We will never end oppression or inequality or give every crime that it deserves. Now, that does not mean that we shouldn't do the best we can, right? Don't don't hear that in what I just said. We should, as much as we are able, advocate for justice in our world and stand up for those who are oppressed and speak truth to unrighteous power. That's all good, um, but if we measure our efforts in that by the results, we are doomed to fail. We will only ever achieve approximate justice in this world. And if we try to bring more than that, we're either going to end up being discouraged and despairing, or we're going to turn into the very tyrants that we think that we're opposing. Our ultimate hope, when we see injustice in this world, and we experience it ourselves, is knowing that God will one day bring final justice. That in our age, we can seek approximate justice, and that is good, but God will bring final justice. And knowing that, keeps us humble and hopeful as we seek to work in the world. 
when we see those things especially that don't seem to be fixable. So that's part of the psalm's answer, that while the wicked seem to prosper in the present, God will bring justice. And then there's another side of the answer too, and that is God's true goodness to us. God's true goodness to us. If you pick back up in verse 21, we read, it says, when my heart was grieved and my spirit embittered, I was senseless and ignorant. I was a brute beast before you. In his envy, the psalmist says, I'd become blind and senseless to this deeper reality. What is that reality? In verse 23, I am always with you. You hold me by my right hand. You guide me with your counsel, and afterward you will take me into glory. So it is God's presence God's loving presence that the psalmist missed. God holds me by my right hand, he says, and guides me by his counsels. There's support and guidance and care in the presence, and then an afterward you will take me into glory. There's hope for this future and ultimate salvation. And that leads the psalmist to declare then, Whom have I in heaven but you? And earth has nothing I desire beside you. My flesh and my heart may fail. But God is the strength of my heart and my portion forever. This is the root problem for the psalmist, right? It is not that his complaint isn't in a sense true, but it is that his complaint reveals a wrong set of valuing priorities in this world. It is true in this life that sometimes wicked people prosper, and they're healthy, and they're comfortable, and it is true in this life that sometimes the righteous suffer and seem much worse off than them. But the psalmist isn't just saying God will fix it in the end. He's saying right now, even with that being true, the righteous still have the better life. And the reason for that is because the righteous have God. They have God. Know God. And be known by him, the psalmist says, is actually worth more than that health and prosperity that the wicked might enjoy. That it is worth the loss and hardship that we might endure. To experience God's love and be strengthened by his presence and walk near him and be indwelt by his spirit, even in the midst of the unfairness and injustice of this world, that is somehow worth that God provides a strength beyond worldly security, right? Like we said, even if the wicked person prospers in this world, there's a sense in which they have to recognize that they're on an unfirm foundation. But if our hope is in the Lord, then we rest on one who cannot be taken from us. No matter what happens today, no matter what life brings, we still have God as our Father and are a part of his family. God provides a hope for the future that is secure. Not just a hope that someday after the final judgment, things will be fixed, although that's part of it, but a hope that we have and will more fully have God himself. God is my portion forever, the psalmist says. That is what he is hoping in. I think we sometimes get confused about what our ultimate reward as Christians will be. We have this idea, and we just talk about, like, mansions and glory, or I don't know, like we're making deposits into some cosmic bank account that we can draw from then um, in the new heavens and new earth. And it is biblical, in a sense, to recognize that there are, you know, there's a goodness, right? A reward, you know, that comes in the, the world hereafter for things that we seek to do in this life. 
But in Scripture, the point of heavenly rewards is not the rewards as some things that we receive. The point of those things is their context within our relationship with God. Whenever the Bible talks about us being given a crown of glory as a reward, every time, which is one of the main like, ways the Bible discusses that, the discussion isn't that the crown, that's not this, the object of the, the verse, it's always that God will place that crown on our heads. When, when Jesus tells the parable of the talents and the master welcomes in the faithful servant, he doesn't just say, like, here's twice as many talents. He says, come into the joy of your master and share it with him. There's nothing more heart-filling or joy-giving than to experience loving communion with God as our Father. All of the riches and success of this world pale in comparison to that. That is the ultimate reward of heaven. And while we might struggle in this world because there is so much that is unjust and hard in this world, that is a reward that in a sense we already have. God is present with me right now dwelling with you and with you. As you trust in him, he is the strength of your heart and your portion today and forever. And the ultimate calling of this psalm is to rejoice in that reality and recognize the true value of what we have in him. That's the answer to the psalmist's complaint. Not just that justice will come and in the end things will be fair, but that right now God is near to me and holds me in his right hand. Our ultimate sin, the source of that envy, is our failure to see that reality. To start buying into a world where we think other things matter more than that. Not that we are wrong when we say, man, I lack these things, but rather what we're missing is what we already have. And it's in recognizing that sweetness of God's presence that our struggles with this question are ultimately answered. And seeing the surpassing worth knowing God and Jesus Christ, that we recognize, though our circumstances may be hard, we are those who somehow, even in spite of that, are truly blessed. Would you pray with me? God and Father, there is much that is unfair and broken in this world. And there is much broken in my heart that causes me not to recognize the glory of this thought, but that you are, Lord, with me near us, and we have you. I pray that you would speak that hope to us. I pray these things in the name of Jesus Christ.